listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 46, Sleep. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we bring together medical students, junior doctors and expert guests to discuss all the things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but you might not get taught at medical school. I'm Nikki and I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at the University of Manchester. And I'm excited to be joined today by my good friends, Laura and Anisha. So if you're a regular Sharp Scratch listener, you'll know Laura. But Laura, do you just want to introduce yourself for anyone new? Sure thing. I'm Laura uh, and I'm a final year medical student at the University of Cambridge. Great to have you back on the pod as always, Laura. And I'm super excited to welcome Anisha as it's her first time recording an app with us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yep, I'm Anisha. I'm a final year medical student at King's College London. So glad to have you with us. And I'm also delighted to welcome our expert guest for this episode, Dr Mike Farquhar. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Mike Farquhar. I'm a consultant in paediatric sleep medicine at Evelina London Children's Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. So today's episode is all about sleep and fatigue as medical students or junior doctors. And I want to discuss why it's important, sort of like the traps that we could fall into with the nature of our work and shifts, as well as all the things that we could do to improve our sleeping pattern. But first things first, Mike, how much sleep should I actually be getting in an ideal world? So one of the things about sleep is that we don't teach you guys very much about it as you train to be doctors or any healthcare professionals, to be perfectly honest. And lots of things about sleep, people expect there to be straightforward, simple answers. And actually, a lot of the time there isn't. So the kind of slightly offhand, flippant answer to your question is the only person that really knows how much sleep you need is you. So I can tell you about ranges of normal. I can tell you what you should be expecting to getting for any age and all the rest of it. But there's a big range of difference in that and just like if we took you know every medical student in the country and uh, arranged them in order of height you would all be slightly different heights um, generally distributed across a distribution curve uh, a standard bell curve Um, your amount of sleep that you need is similarly distributed and you might get by with seven hours of sleep you might be unlucky enough to need 10 hours of sleep to recharge your batteries but the only person that can work that out is you And what would you say is the recommended? So for adults, um, the median uh, amount of sleep that most people need is probably somewhere between about seven to eight hours. Um, Medical students are usually, not always, um, but the majority of medical students, I think, are still under the age of 25. um, And you still fall into uh, what we would think of as almost adolescence in terms of uh, biological development. Um, and you will need slightly more sleep on average. So that if you look in adolescence, the mean amount of sleep is somewhere about nine and a half hours per night. So you guys are probably, um, for those of you still under the age of 25, are probably somewhere between seven and a half to nine and a half hours as your median amount. But again, you need to be able to work it out for yourselves. The listeners can't see, but Laura looks quite surprised. Laura, did you want to say something? <laughs> uh, so interesting. Like I didn't realise that adolescents required so much more sleep than adults, nor that that period of needing a bit more sleep lasted all the way until 25. That's really interesting and makes me feel a bit better about needing loads of sleep. (laughs) We often set ourselves these very unrealistic standards, and I think particularly for medical students, where you are very pressured, you're very focused on getting the best results, and often sleep is seen as the thing that you can sacrifice. Um, Mm. We'll come back to that, I suspect, as we go on. Um, If you think about it in terms of the duration, though, if you flip that the other way around, um, if you think about how much sleep a newborn baby gets, so they are getting somewhere of the order of about 16 to 18 hours of sleep, sometimes a bit more in a 24-hour period. So generally, the amount of sleep that you need over the the period of time from birth until you are a fully-fledged adult is decreasing. 
Um, you generally need less sleep at each age as you mm -hmm. get older. The idea of adolescence as extending up until about the age of 25 uh, reflects the fact that when we look at the development of the brain, um, we know that the brain doesn't finish fully developing until you're in your early 20s. Um, and that means we can still see some persistence of some of the, the, the changes associated with adolescence into young adults. Um, and sleep, I think, is very much one of those. And when you were talking there, you mentioned about sort of getting between seven to nine hours. Um, do you mean that is that ideal to have that all in one block or would it naturally be better for us to sleep in two blocks? Like I know a lot of animals sort of all nap after midday. My great grandma, for example, wakes up at about 6am and after lunch insists that she has to have a nap. And that is, she insists that's why she's still alive. And if you go to visit her, you do have to take a nap with her after lunch. So, Mike, <laughs> is it better for us to be taking this one, like, 16 hours awake, eight hours of sleep? Or naturally, what would be best? One of the things about sleep is that there is a biological underpinning to sleep um, and humans have particular patterns of sleep distinct to other animals uh, when we look at their sleep patterns. But there's also quite a lot of social and cultural input into sleep as well. So when you're talking about what is normal for sleep, you are asking what is normal for sleep in the context of a young adult in the United Kingdom in 2021. And any one of those three things, if you change those, you will find that the answer of what is normal sleep changes. So uh, children sleep very differently to uh, older children uh, and adults. So babies you know, will sleep two to three hours at a time, sleep, wake up, sleep, wake up. Um, whereas most older children and adults sleep for a consolidated block of time overnight and are then awake in the daytime. So your age depends what normal sleep is. Um, so in the United Kingdom, we have for quite some time had a pattern of wake and sleep where people are expected to be asleep at night and awake in the daytime. That contrasts uh, if you go to uh, cultures such as those around the Mediterranean, uh, where the concept of a mid-afternoon siesta is kind of built into the way that their world works, historically anyway. So everybody gets up and like your grandmother has an after lunch uh, uh, siesta recharges their batteries and what you often then find is things like the evening meal and bedtime are also shifted later so the whole rhythm of everything shifts later um, so the entire culture is adapted around that um, so that's the second thing is you know sleep varies depending where you are and then the other thing is history so there is some evidence it's not absolutely uh, uh, solid uh, in terms of doing it but there's some evidence that if you dial back a few hundred years in this country um, that people did sleep in uh, interrupted periods so people would have first sleep and second sleep where they would go to sleep probably when the sun went down they would sleep for a length of time they would then get up and be active for a period of time in the middle of the night and then they would go back to sleep again um, and have a second sleep and there's some evidence that, that that pattern existed in the middle ages um, so what we call normal um, is very dependent on the filters that you're looking at that through, if that makes sense. I also just wanted to pick up on something that you said at the very beginning, how you said that it varies for every single person, like only I would know how much sleep I need. And then there's also this whole concept of some people thinking that they're like a morning person or some people being like night owls. So for example, like Anisha, would you describe yourself as a morning person or not? I think it's got to the point in medicine where I just force myself to be both. <laughs> um, where do you think you naturally morning, lie? Morning. Yeah. I, I love getting up in the morning. I think it's because, say around 5am, 6am, I think the rest of the world is just asleep. It's quite peaceful. You just kind of yeah. get loads of stuff done with, I think. Um, yeah. 
But I think being a medical student, you almost feel guilty for just sleeping at any point of the day, <laughs> even at night. Um, oh, man. Interesting so I completely that you said, lost that. It's interesting that you said guilty there, because I also think there's this whole other thing about like mourning people having this sort of like moral high ground and about how those who prefer to sleep in like regardless of how late they might have stayed up being very productive sort of being branded as like being lazy because they are lying in I think it is quite culturally ingrained like you know that I mean it's also kind of the a bit grounded in like advice that you get from CEOs or like all these so-called successful people yeah. there seems to be like a tendency towards early mornings and so on mike it looks like you're having thoughts oh i have lots of thoughts um, so i guess to rewind that back a little bit so there's lots of things to talk about there and i have no idea how much time we've got actually um your circadian rhythm your body clock um is one of the strongest drives there is in your body and um although generally humans have a body clock that means you are awake in the day and asleep at night time there is, again, a bit of individual variation in that. So some people have body clocks that are set earlier and they will be the morning larks. They get up early. They do the most productive work at the beginning of the day. They tend to go to sleep earlier uh, and then sleep through. The opposite is the night owl types who tend to be later to rise, but then are much more likely to be awake later in the evening, find it more difficult to get to bed earlier and are often more likely to do their most productive work towards the end of the day. And if you let these people just kind of evolve or settle to their own background genetic clocks, what you probably would find is that they would sleep roughly equivalently in terms of uh, length of time, but when they sleep would vary. And if they didn't have to fit into the world, then they would be fine. Um, so that variation does exist. I think, um, and he's absolutely right, in that medical school, and I'm afraid being a doctor, um, forces you very much into trying to be both those things. You're kind of told, oh, you must get up early and get all this done, and you have to stay up late, and then we make you work night shifts, which makes it even worse. Um, so there is quite a lot of kind of forcing people's body clocks, uh, particularly uh, in studying uh, and then uh, working as a doctor. The circadian clock comes out another way. So your grandmother's afternoon nap is reflecting the fact that the circadian clock makes us feel more sleepy just after lunchtime. Um, and that's because the kind of the, there are two sort of competing things that are determining whether you're feeling how awake or sleepy you're feeling at any one time. So there's what we'll call sleep pressure, which is just kind of a need for sleep that builds up the longer you've been awake. And that builds up fairly linearly from the point you wake up in the morning until you go to sleep at night time. And then there's an alerting signal that comes from the circadian clock that's kind of countering that sleep pressure. So at the beginning of the day, you have low sleep pressure and then you have a, a relatively low alerting signal and you're fine. As the day goes on, the sleep pressure builds up, but so does the alerting signal. So you stay equivalently awake. But then around about lunchtime, what happens is that the sleep pressure builds up quicker than the alerting signal keeps uh, pace with. So you feel more sleepy after lunch. And that's why cultures build in siestas or your grandmother has her after lunch nap. And in evolutionary terms, we think probably that is explained by things like, you know, if you think back to the Stone Age and evolving on the, the, the plains of Africa, from an evolutionary point of view, it wasn't that sensible for us to be out and about in the middle of the, the noonday sun. So we evolved a protective mechanism where at that point we take ourselves away to go and have a snooze, recharge our batteries and, and then crack on. Later on in the day, the alerting signal gets stronger, which is why you tend to feel more awake in the afternoon, late afternoon and evening than you did after lunch. And that kind of how our rhythms interact is really important when you're trying to think about these things. And if you don't have that kind of basic knowledge about sleep, then it's difficult to make sense of that. But a little bit of knowledge and suddenly these things all start to make sense. 
How do I find out how much sleep I need? Oh, really easy.、Um, so,、uh, in a time where you don't have any other pressures or anything else to do, or exams to study for, or anything at all like that,、um, you just need to, to carve out a bit of time. So, I look after lots of teenagers, and you know, teenagers have their own issues with body clocks that gives them a particular problem. So, what I tell them to do is during their summer holidays, I set them the challenge of saying, "Look, go to sleep when you feel sleepy, and let yourself wake up naturally." Um, and you can do this so that when you've got a holiday,、um, it probably needs about ten to fourteen days to do this properly. And what you tend to find is if you get yourself falling to sleep at consistently the same time each night, the first few days it's a bit like an extended weekend. You will find that you oversleep because what you're doing is catching up on all the sleep that you've been deprived of in the the weekdays before that. But by the time you get to seven, ten days into this, what most people find is they go to sleep at a consistent time and they will wake up at a consistent time.、Um, it's actually quite difficult if you're not acutely sleep deprived or catching up on a degree of chronic sleep deprivation. It's quite difficult to oversleep. Your body will make you wake up and go right. You should be awake now. So whatever that length of time is that you go to sleep naturally and wake up naturally, that is probably your sleep requirement. And I will promise you that your sleep requirement is more than the sleep you are getting on a typical night. So, as a final year medical student, what I'm hearing is that I have one chance remaining in my life to try this out, and that is in the month between <laughs> the end of med school and the beginning of my first F1 job. So that's a slightly bleak way of looking at life as a doctor. <laughs> we, we do give you holiday time, you know. So it's not your last chance; <laughs> it is probably your next best chance. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, and I think it is—it's a useful bit of information to know about yourself. And although that will change gradually over time, if you do that and you find that you are one of the lucky people that only need seven hours of sleep to to get the right amount of sleep, then great. If you find that you're one of the more unlucky people who needs ten hours of sleep to fully recharge your batteries,、mm-hmm. then actually it might be really difficult for you to get ten hours of sleep every night of your life. But at least if you know that you need ten hours of sleep, then you can make plans for your sleep schedule around about that.、Um, and that's before, as I said, we start plugging you into rotas. That means you then have to work、mm-hmm. around the clock、mm-hmm. and all the chaos that causes for sleep. So, so there's two things I think that people don't appreciate about sleep,、um, and medical students probably exemplify both of them、uh, in one way or another. So one is learning. Come back to that in a second. Second is sport, and actually, if you look at、um, elite athletes in particular, one of the things that they are phenomenally careful about doing as part of their training program is getting their sleep right. They are not going to skimp sleep.、Um, they will make sure they're getting the right amount of sleep because they know they perform better when they sleep properly.、Um, and big、uh, sports clubs, so Man United、uh, in the UK, football,、uh, Boston Red Sox, baseball in the, in the, the States, rugby clubs. These people will employ sleep doctors to try and help make sure that their teams are sleeping as well as possible. Because at that level, that little bit of difference will make a, a big enough difference to their performance that it's worth it.、Um, so yeah, so sleep and athletics is is quite an interesting connection, and in how you can use sleep to to perform.、Um, and learning is the kind of the academic equivalent of that. Really interesting that you're speaking about performance because I actually also wanted to speak a bit about concentration and stuff with sleep. Because when I think back to when I was in sixth form, 
I didn't really have a very good sleeping pattern. I was often only sleeping around five or six hours at night at maximum. And I think I really paid the price for it. Like when I think back to my lessons in sixth form, like trying to stay awake, I found it really, really difficult to concentrate. And I sometimes felt like I was actively fighting my eyelids from um, falling down. And now I'm quite strict with myself about making sure I get the right amount of sleep. And I feel so much better for it. I feel like I do things better. I'm happier. I feel healthier with it. But yeah, as you were saying about performance and how much does it impact your concentration? So hugely. Um, so, and again, so that kind of thinking about teenage adolescent brains in particular. So if we say, for sake of argument, a typical teenager needs about nine and a half hours sleep. Teenagers are all, the way that the, um, the body changes during adolescence, the vast majority of teenagers become night owls. So actually they really struggle to get to sleep, certainly as early as 10 o'clock, many of them, and many of them will find their natural sleep time is 11 o'clock midnight. Now, if you fall asleep at midnight as a teenager and the average amount of sleep you need is nine and a half hours, if you are getting up any time before half past nine in the morning, then you are getting up too early. And so we, yeah. the, the world is set against teenagers when it comes to sleep. Um, and you guys are still probably surfing the, the last little bit of that. Sleep. There are different types of sleep that we get as we go through the night. So we sleep in cycles of around about 90 minutes on average. And within each of those sleep cycles, we go through the different types of sleep. So we have deep sleep, which kind of physically recharges your batteries, helps with growth and repair, uh, light sleep and dream sleep. And light sleep and dream sleep are both much more involved in the cognitive aspects of sleep. So things like processing memory, learning, emotions. The way that this works, although you get each type of sleep within each sleep cycle, the proportions of sleep change as you go through the night. And we get most of our deep sleep at the beginning of the night, the first third, and the more of the light sleep and dream sleep as the night goes on. So if you are chronically sleep deprived, if you are missing, if you're cutting off that last two or three hours of sleep every night of your life, the bit of sleep you are missing out on is the sleep that is actually most important for learning and memory and being a nice person, actually, so kind of the emotional <laughs> side of things. So this is why, and I think one of you said it at the beginning, this kind of idea as medical students that you feel guilty if you're not up burning the midnight oil. But actually, from a learning point of view, you are much better in prioritising your sleep. And we know, so if you are learning, you know, if you've learned something new today, if you didn't get a good night's sleep last night, you will not take in that information and retain it as well as you would have done if you had a good night's sleep last night. And if you don't get a good night's sleep tonight, you won't process and remember and integrate that information as well as if you do get a good night's sleep. So sleep is absolutely fundamental to learning. But because we don't teach medical students in particular that, and because medicine is seen as something where you must be, so not only must you be working hard, but you must be seen to be working hard, then people are often doing that, burning the midnight oil, staying up late studying, getting up early to go to the gym and study and all the rest of it. And by missing out sleep, actually, you end up functioning less well at all of those things. And you're a less mm. nice person. That's really, really interesting. <laughs> I feel like there's some kind of joke here about correlation between the people who <laughs> in medicine study extremely hard and the niceness of people. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like an obvious joke. Yeah, that's dangerous ground. You can do that. I'm staying away. <laughs> Would you actually say that you have any tips in terms of both falling asleep and also maintaining sleep? Because like every night time that I've got something important happening the next day or I know I've got to be up for a certain time or if it's exam results or something that I've got to do quite early in the morning, I will wake up at 1am, 2am, 3am thinking that I've missed it and my body just automatically wakes me up. But 
normally I find it quite difficult to wake up to an alarm. So yes, I mean, you would hope, I'm a consultant sleep doctor, you'd hope I had some tips about it. But, <laughs> um, yes, so, but a lot of this is about doing simple things really well. Um, and sleep is one of these really boring things where actually most people know what you should be doing and actually it's just putting that into practice. So sleep, um, good sleep is very habitual. So the more of a routine you have, the more of good habits you have and the more you stick to that, the more likely you are to have good sleep overall. And that's one of the difficulties. So that can be tough as a medical student. I'm afraid it's even more tough as a junior doctor because one of the first things we get you to do as junior doctors is to start working shift patterns that take you completely out of normal yeah, routine and rhythm. that's something I'm really not looking forward to at all. Um, but good routines, good habits are the foundation of good sleep. And this, I'm afraid, is really basic, boring stuff. So, you know, you should try to go to bed at roughly the same time each night. You should try to get up at roughly the same time each day. Um, you should try to do all the things that as doctors, you're going to get very used to telling patients that are, are good for them. So get out into the outside world, do daily exercise, you know, get you know, a bit of physical exercise every day. All good for sleep. Try and make sure that the time before sleep, so the hour or so before sleep, you shouldn't still be on your laptops trying to cram things. You need some time to help your brain to relax and wind down. So the hour before bed as much as possible should be about things that help you to relax and wind down. And then there are some things that are good for that and some things that are bad. So one of the real bad things is things like electronic screens. So TVs, iPads, phones um, can have a negative effect on sleep. So we try and encourage people to be off those, which in the modern world is very difficult. Lots of people are kind of sitting there glued to their phones last thing at night. The other thing that's really important is, um, so there are a few things that uh, as a, an intrinsic problem of sleep itself will cause you to have sleep difficulties. But actually, most people who have sleep difficulties, it's because something else is affecting their sleep um, uh, rather than being something wrong with their sleep itself. And that can be physical. You know, if you bang your knee in the gym this morning and then every time you roll over in bed, you get a twinge of pain from it. Well, that's going to affect your sleep. Mm. But it can also be a lot to do with what we've been thinking about. And if you've been stressed or worried or anxious in the daytime and all those things are still on your mind, then that is going to affect the quality of sleep that you have through the night. One of the things we encourage people to do um, is, and it doesn't work for everybody, but if, have you heard of mindfulness, kind of relaxation strategies? So these are just kind of mental exercises that you can teach yourself. And all they're really trying to do is distract your brain a little bit. So if your brain is going, oh my God, that exam's in a week's time, what am I going to do? And that thought is occupying your brain, then that makes it more difficult to get to sleep. So what mindfulness techniques do is try and teach you distraction techniques that help you to relax and calm down. And if you build these into your routine, if you do the same thing to relax and wind down, use the same kind of mindfulness techniques each night, then that helps. But also what that means is if you do wake up at one o'clock in the morning, you can then go back and replay as many of those things that help you to get to sleep as possible. And that gives you a better chance of getting back to sleep. Anisha, <laughs> how would you describe your like nighttime routine as you're going to bed? Like, Do you think you've got a good routine similar to like what Mike was saying? Or Yes and no. So at the moment, my sleep is terrible. I think just with exams, like Mike was saying, you've got so many thoughts in your head. You're thinking about what you studied that day. You're thinking about, is it enough? You go to sleep with these racing thoughts in your head. But one thing I do, and I think it's similar to mindfulness in the sense that it just takes my mind off thinking about studies, is I like to listen to rain sounds to put me to sleep. I think it's just a white noise and it just distracts you completely. 
that's the one weird thing I do. <laughs> well, it's not weird at all. Um, um, and it's actually one of the things that we encourage. So lots of sensory things can help. So if you're thinking about trying to build as good sleep habits as possible, the more consistent those things are and the more that your brain associates those things with bedtime and sleep, the better they are likely to be over time. So we use, so in our clinic uh, with uh, kids and teenagers, we encourage them to use sensory stimuli as part of their bedtime routines. And that can be sound, um, it can be smell, uh, it can be touch. Uh, So uh, because some kids with autism in particular really like those weighted blankets, uh, for example. And so we can use the senses and the more of those things you build into your routine, the more consistent they will be through the night. Um, Sound has a couple of rules. So we could talk about sleep association. So these are things that are just part of your sleep routine. If you go to bed with those sounds of rainfall and then you wake up in the night, we'll come back to that in two seconds, and that noise is still there and your brain really strongly associates that sound with being asleep, then that is kind of a nudge to your brain to say, go back to sleep. You were meant to still be asleep. This is still sleep time. So the stronger all those sensory things are, the better. So, yeah, that's absolutely a a good way of, of thinking about it. Just um, speaking of sleep cycles, so they're 90 minutes, I was just wondering in terms of, say, being a junior doctor, obviously we're going to be sleep deprived. Would you say taking a nap in the middle of the day would be a good idea or would that mess with your sleep schedule completely? So it depends a little bit. So um, daytime napping as a general rule is not a good idea if you want to be asleep at night time. So you only need a finite amount of sleep in a 24 hour period. Um, And if you then have a three hour nap in the middle of the afternoon, then that means you're probably going to get quite a lot of deep sleep in that nap. And you'll probably find it more difficult to get to sleep at 10, 10 30. And it'll affect your nighttime sleep. So Daytime napping, you have to think about carefully. And if you look, so for example, if we go back to uh, Nikki's grandmother and look at the total amount of sleep that she gets in a 24-hour period, what you will probably find is actually the total amount of sleep is broadly equivalent to somebody else of the same age that doesn't have a daytime nap, but probably sleeps more overnight. So the total amount of sleep is relatively consistent. Um, And any daytime sleep is probably stealing time from nighttime naps. If you were chronically sleep deprived, then you may find that you need some daytime sleep just to function. But we try and encourage you to do that as little as possible. And what we often do is encourage people to have really short naps of maybe 15 to 20 minutes, just enough to recharge, to let you function, but not so much sleep that it then affects your ability to get nighttime sleep. And that's something when we're thinking about people coming in and out of night shifts in particular, how you manage that transition between night sleep and day sleep and day sleep and night sleep uh, is something that we try and help, or I I try very much and help with uh, people in doing it. It's all about managing naps and and when and how to take it. Well, we'll discuss a little bit more about naps and night shifts, but that'll be right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot, You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. 
and when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. All right, back to the show. So I do want to talk a little bit about working nights because I do think they're something that we're probably all naturally a little bit nervous of whilst at med school. I, I think Lara's about this so much. <laughs> and I, I've been thinking about it the other, in the past few days, like um, in preparation for this recording, thinking about how if I struggled to stay awake in lessons when I wasn't having very good sleep, then I don't want to be in a position when it comes to patient care and I want to be like alert and high functioning. Um, Mike, I read some work that you've done for the, I think for the BMJ before about shift work and the dangers and how you don't think that it's particularly done well. Is there stuff that you want to talk about that? So I think historically it's not been done well. So I think historically we just plugged healthcare professionals, so junior doctors, nurses, um, all the people that help support us at night. We just said, right, you are working at night and we just expected people to crack on and do exactly the same at night time as they would in the daytime. And that kind of ignores the strength of that circadian clock. If you think about what happens, if you are lucky enough when we're allowed to travel again, to travel far mm. enough around the world to be jet lagged, the reason you get jet lagged is because your body clock is saying to you it's midday and the world is telling you it's midnight. So you're trying to be awake when you're meant to be asleep, asleep when you're meant to be awake. And jet lag is not a pleasant feeling. But what jet lag is, is the expression of the, the discongruity between what you are trying to do and what your body clock is telling you to do. And fundamentally, at three o'clock in the morning, then you know, every single cell in your brain and body is telling you that you're meant to be asleep. And yet we tell healthcare professionals in the NHS that at three o'clock in the morning, they should be providing care to the same standard as we do in the daytime. So from a physiological sense, um, that's just wrong. Um, and I think historically, we've not paid enough attention to that. And I do quite a lot of banging of drums saying that this is a systemic responsibility. It's an organisational responsibility. Uh, we should be thinking about how we support people that work at night as best as we can. And I do a lot of work around about that. Um, that's also so that, you know, again, talking about sleep deprivation uh, and the impact that has on your health. We know because there's better data because um, people who work night shifts are, are kind of a, a distinct group when we're looking at sleep and sleep deprivation. We know that people who work long term night shifts have worse health, uh, health outcomes. It does affect your physical and mental health. And employers, I think, have a responsibility to mitigate that as much as they can. But you are then individuals working within that system. So there is work that can be done to educate people better uh, about saying, look, it is not biologically brilliant that we expect you to work at three o'clock in the morning, but this is the job that you are here to do. We are here to provide 24 hour care. So how do we do that as best as we can? I do quite a lot. Um, so since I started as a consultant um, eight or so years ago, I've done quite a lot of teaching uh, about trying to give people those skills and I can uh, send you a link there's a, a, a kind of a paper summary that if people are listening to this are interested and you're thinking about your future careers and doing night shifts mm. that, that gives you yeah I can pop that in the episode description I think I've read that like 10 times <laughs> I know like I know what you're referring to I've I think read I've read it, it like <laughs> you can look at that you can read it you can try and do it and actually you could follow all the advice that somebody like me gives almost perfectly and still it's going to be tough because biologically it's just not what we're meant to be doing so I think we do need to talk a lot about it a lot more. We need to be a lot more honest about it. Um, the reason that I started doing that work when I became a consultant is because, uh, very sadly, we lose um, doctors and nurses every year who, after working a night shift, get behind the wheel of a car and they fall asleep behind the wheel of a car and they crash and die. And that, I think, is 
a risk that we should talk about a lot more and we should be doing a lot more to actively reduce that risk. And that was one of the, mm. the reasons why I started doing this uh, at the very beginning. Mike, our, um, our audience, our listeners are generally medical students and junior doctors. And I know both Laura and Anisha are final years and will potentially be doing night shifts next next year. So what tips would you give them if they're about to do their first night shift? I know, Laura, you've done a night shift before, haven't you? I've done one just uh, like a couple of months ago, my first ever proper wholehearted I'm doing this properly night shift and it was just the one and it was sandwiched by day shifts which I know isn't very optimal I mean I think again it's basic stuff and it's very boring Um, it is absolutely worth investing before you start uh, having to do shift patterns that have you working around the clock and doing all this it's really worth investing as much as possible in your core sleep routines and habits and getting them as good as you possibly can because that's what's going to protect you um, if we are going to force you out of a normal routine to make you work at night the stronger your core sleep routines and habits are one the easier it is to kind of flip back into that but also the the less chronic sleep deprivation you have at the beginning the more you're going to be able to cope so a lot of what I do is encouraging people to think about their basic core foundation sleep and how they can improve that and that again you know so as you said you're you're a month or so before you start work taking a couple of those weeks to do that exercise and say right how much sleep should I be getting and how close to that amount of sleep am I going to be able to get working a a junior doctor rota and trying to build it in there are then a whole load of hints and tips and again so the detail of that is in that paper um uh, in terms of but you know things that you can do to try and uh, prepare for night shifts and how to work through the night uh, and how to recover from night shift. I spend quite a lot of time as well. So this is, you know, this started out as the night shift work, but it's kind of broadened since then about the importance of rest and breaks. You know, if you are going to work 12, 13 hour shifts, then uh, it's just not possible to carry on working at your best for 12 to 13 hours without rest and breaks. But you are all the type of people as you come into the profession who think that you're the least important person in the room. You will come in thinking, oh, my God, I can't possibly leave Mrs. Smith waiting an extra 30 minutes whilst I stop and have a cup of tea and a Kit Kat. She's more important. I must go and do what she needs done right now. And actually, you know, cardiac arrests and immediate things that need resuscitating notwithstanding, you are probably better taking the time for you to have a rest and a break so that your batteries are recharged. So actually you you function better and she will get better care from you in 30 minutes for your cup of tea and a Kit Kat than if you just cracked on and done it 30 minutes before. So I spend quite a lot of time trying to emphasise that idea about rest and uh, breaks as well. Yeah, that's really reassuring to hear actually, I think really good advice. Laura, did you want to tell us about your night shift? Yeah, so obviously I was uh, super excited and nervous about it, having done a done an episode about uh, night shifts as one of my first episodes on Charlotte Scratch in the first place. I didn't pack any frozen grapes. Long-time listeners will be disappointed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I thought a lot about like what food I was bringing, like what, what snacks, you know, thinking, do I want a lunch, like in the middle of the night kind of thing? And I... I had a good sleep before and I had a little sort of 6 to 7 p.m. nap and a cup of coffee before I went, but I didn't bring any... Usually when I go to placement, like during the day, I bring a thermos of coffee and drink it throughout the morning. But I thought for a night shift, don't want to mess too much with that and just have a coffee before I go and then no other caffeine through the night. And I found myself absolutely hyped up, super buzzed until like (laughs) 
four in the morning. Like, I felt so good. I felt like alive. I mean, it's partly also because I was shadowing a really good doctor who, and I saw lots of patients by myself. You know, I was, I was having a really good educational experience as well, rather than sort of passively waiting around, which is exhausting. But, um, so I was like always on the go. And then about 4 p.m., that's when it, 4 a.m., sorry, is when I started to think, crikey, is it, is it nearly the end? And, you know, and, and this kind of reflects what I've seen at morning handovers that, there's a big difference between the doctor who's just finished their first night shift and the doctor who's just finished their last night shift. I think potentially because this was just like a one-off night shift that I was able to prepare for and, you know, I had no other like free time responsibilities that I was able to put my all into it and go through so much of the night with a really sort of like high energy and attention level. But I can imagine if you did like a whole bunch of them in a row that you'd end up that like time when you think oh is it the morning yet gets like earlier and earlier I think all in all I got conflicting advice uh about what to do the day after from junior doctors who are just like a bit ahead of me and my initial plan was to stay awake for the entire next day until bedtime and then have like a long sleep but in the end I ended up following the advice of the doctor I'd shadowed had a morning nap for a couple of hours Mike's nodding oh that yes, makes me feel really good that makes me feel really good yeah so I had, a, I had a nap for a couple of hours um then I got up and I did uh like some gentle exercise and stuff like that because I remembered that from your paper Mike and went to bed early as well and then was present and correct for attending a surgery the next uh like the next morning at early in the morning so um all in all extremely exciting but still not sure that it's like completely assuaged my nerves about how to cope because I didn't have responsibility either. That's the other key difference. I didn't have, I didn't really have any responsibility and I didn't have to make any decisions. So I'm still nervous about the ability to make safe decisions, particularly when working cereal nights. But at least I feel better about the sort of food and caffeine situation, knowing that like, yeah, I had a little go at it uh, and I feel happy with like how, it, how I managed that. What time did you have um, lunch? <laughs> what time did I have lunch? I think, uh, I, think I, I did it like halfway through. So that would be like two in the morning. I think I did eight till eight. So I, yeah, I'd, I'd made that bit up. I don't know when like, <laughs> my body, I don't know. I didn't really have like a hunger kind of time. I just thought oh, it's like halfway through. Now's the time for a snack. All right. What, how, what grade do I get, Mike? Yeah, Did I'm really interested to hear Mike's <laughs> feedback. On 75%, this. let's say. And so I think there's a few things in that. So first of all, um, your body clock again, um, a lot of how we feel at any point in the 24 hours in relation to how you know how awake we feel, how tired we feel is to do with our body clock. And that is quite difficult to shift. So three, four o'clock in the morning is generally when your body clock is at its absolute low point. It is sending no messages to you to say, I am awake. So at the beginning of a night shift, you're kind of still surfing the daytime a bit you've got a bit of energy particularly if you've got the excitement of it and all the rest of it but that will take you so far and then three four o'clock in the morning you feel your absolute worst and that is pretty universal what most people tend to find is a few hours after that they actually feel a lot better so you kind of get this kind of second wind feeling and that's because for most of us six seven o'clock in the morning our body clock is flipping into day mode so you get that kind of boost from the body clock saying you are now meant to be awake there are downsides to that as well so although you feel more awake objectively, if we were to test things like your reaction time, which is what's going to put you at risk when you get behind the wheel of a car, for example, that is still going to be impaired. But subjectively, you will feel better than you are. So actually, that second wind has pros and cons to it. But three, four o'clock in the morning, everybody feels their worst. I absolutely promise you that. Eating. So uh, a few things about eating. So there is a kind of 
pervasive, uh, it's not just junior doctors, it's healthcare professionals at night in general, that nighttime calories don't count. Uh, and <laughs> tragically, the opposite is probably true. So your body is not expecting to be processing food and calorific intake in the middle of the night. Everything kind of slows down and shuts down. And we know that when you eat at night, that is one of the things that increases your risk of things like lifetime, uh, risk of things like type 2 diabetes and obesity, because your body just doesn't handle calories as well in the middle of the night. The timing of eating is something there's a lot more interest in and we're probably, we are evolutionary, uh, better fitted to actually eating for quite a narrow window of time during the day. So probably about an eight hour window in the daytime is our optimal time for eating. And we really shouldn't be having massive meals outside that. That's real tricky because when I'm, when I'm tired, I then can't cope with the feelings that come with being hungry. Two reasons for that. <laughs> One... At three o'clock in the morning, once I'm afraid that initial excitement of, oh, this is night shift, it's quite interesting, has worn off, you are going to feel as if you made all the wrong life choices. And why am I here <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning when all my friends were out last night clubbing and now they're, you know, they're all having a great time and I'm here at three o'clock in the morning doing this. This is deeply unfair. Give me chocolate cake now. because <laughs> so, so there's that bit of it. But there's also one of the things that we know that happens when people are sleep deprived is their appetite tends to increase a little bit and they tend to mm. crave unhealthy food things you want the quick yeah. fix buzz so yeah. there's a physiological yeah. and a psychological reason why you are going to eat all the unhealthy foods in the middle of the night and again that is a health risk in the longer term so what i generally encourage people to do is to yeah a light snack a lunch kind of meal is good but as midnight ish or before and then try and stick to healthy snacks through the rest of the night rather than uh, binging on carbs and chocolate and all those things Caffeine. Can I have so, a gold star then, Mike? Can I have a gold you star? Because I, uh, I brought with me an apple and two satsumas and some Yeah, rice come back to that's me after so you've healthy. done six months of nights nice. and see whether you're still sticking <laughs> yeah, with that. Um, <laughs> Feel one-off night shift. <laughs> you're absolutely right in being careful about caffeine. So the problem with caffeine is that it takes quite a long time to come out of your system. And if you overdose on caffeine through the night to keep you awake, the positive effects of that wear off quite quickly. But that is then going to affect your ability to get to sleep in the daytime and get good quality quality sleep, which in the long run is just going to make you feel even worse the next night. But there is a role for caffeine. Exactly as you said, it's probably about using it more towards the beginning of the shift to kind of front load and, and help a little bit. And um, what caffeine does is it temporarily blocks some of that sleep pressure that builds up, but only temporarily. One of the most important things that I recommend for people working through the night is you're entitled to rest and breaks um, at night, even more so than in the daytime. And most people, if you can use one of your night shift breaks to take a short power nap in the middle of the night, and we're talking literally 15 to 20 minutes, um, that's all. It's often enough to recharge your batteries to help you power through the rest of the night. Caffeine takes about 15 minutes to be metabolized. So whatever your preference of caffeine is, once you've got into that habit of having a power nap at three in the morning, you take your last shot of caffeine as you go to sleep. And then when you yeah. wake up, you get a double kick from the caffeine kicking in and the yeah. nap, which um, sounds weird, but actually lots of people find that helps. Yeah, I, I, I think I do this. I call it a coffee nap. I do this. <laughs> so, and it works. It doesn't work for everybody. And some people find even taking the power naps really difficult. But then even, even if you don't sleep, just the discipline of taking yourself away for 15 to 20 minutes and properly just you know switching off the lights, hopefully giving your bleep to somebody else if you can, and just relaxing for 15 to 20 minutes is often very helpful. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of tricks like that, but th there is no, so again, one of the things I come back to when I teach about this is people are often asking me, what's the, what's the best way? What's the good way to do this? And there is no best way. There is no good way. There are only varying shades of least bad. 
So fundamentally, you're just not meant to be evolved to be up at three o'clock in the morning saving lives. But this is what you're here to do. And we're very grateful to you for doing it. But it's about how you adapt to that as best as you can. Um, and, that, you know, it's, it's impossible to be perfect, I'm afraid. Have we thought about the uh, systemic approach of making sure that no one gets sick at night? Have, has that been tried? <laughs> been tried? I don't think we've yet found that holy grail, though, but you can certainly you know, work on it. Um, but actually, that's also another important point. You know, so when we're thinking about the role of sleep itself, sleep is something that helps us to stay healthy and stay well. And if you are sick, if you get the flu, for example, you will find usually that you will increase the amount of sleep that you get because your body is using that as a way to recover from illness. And when you think about hospitals, if you've been in hospital at night, they're really not great places for sleep. Um, so, you know, we, we do a lot of work as well about trying to make sure that people think about the hospital at night as... It's not about doing everything you possibly can. For many patients, it should be about doing as little as we can, as safely as we can, so that they get their sleep, because actually their sleep is going to help them to get better. Um, you know, so, that, you know, I was uh, a long, long time ago, uh, I used to work in the neonatal intensive care as an ICHO, um, and it was like, you know, well, the babies must be bled every day before the ward round. And actually the babies needed to sleep. Um, and, you know, waking people up to bleed them in the middle of the night is actually probably not very good for them, to be perfectly honest. Um, unless they really, really, really need the results, in which case obviously you do that, that's more important, but, you know. I have another question about systemic things. So if, uh, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, there were like organisational things that institutions could do. And I think one thing I've read about is that it helps if your night shifts and earlies and lates are sort of organised cyclically so that you're not like jumping backwards and forwards yeah. but that you're like kind of almost going forward around that circle yeah. you know nights then early so, then late then nights so this is body clock physiology again so most people's body clock it is easier to force yourself to stay up slightly later than it is to force yourself to fall asleep earlier so most people's body clocks roll forward um, and exactly for that reason that means when we're designing rotors we should be designing rotors that kind of shift people forward in their body clock. So doing a day shift, then a run of evening shifts, then a run of night shifts makes more physiological sense for most people. Doing it the opposite way around, you're trying to force yourself to, to, to sleep in a way that doesn't fit with your natural body clock. It's why jet lag is always worse going New York to London than London to New York, mm-hmm. um, because you're going against your body clock when you come east compared to when you go west. So as a new doctor next year, uh, when I see my rotor and see that it's been designed in a way that's really hostile to my physiology, like obviously, as like I'll just crack on and do the job. But how do you appeal to those kind of organisational problems? Like, how do you do that, Mike? Who do you talk to, or how do you? And how do you it's... do it? First of all, so first well, yeah, of all, yeah, yeah. because people like me and lots of others have been shouting about this for quite a long time, there is now a lot more recognition about these things. And that means that rotors are generally being designed, not perfectly and not universally, but with much more with this in mind. Uh, this is a BMJ podcast. Um, so the BMJ is kind of vaguely affiliated with the BMA. I'm never quite sure how it all relates. But anyway, the BMA, so the BMA has produced a lot of work on this which every trust in England has signed up to, uh, the whole of NHS Wales has signed up to, and Scotland's kind of uh, coming along uh, with it as well. And that includes these principles. So it includes things like if you are designing a rotor, it needs to stick to certain principles to be sensible. 
So some of that is in things like the BMA's Fatigue and Facilities Charter. Some of it is wired into the junior doctor contract. Um, that there are certain standards about when we're thinking about routine people, um, how uh, about rules that should be followed. So a lot of that should be there. If you then find that you're in a rota that you think doesn't meet or follow those guidelines, then your usual escalation is through your junior doctors forum, your BMA representatives, um, whoever you've got to amplify your voice. Because as much as everybody's voice should be heard and should have the chance to be equally heard, um, as a first year doctor, um, your strength comes from having somebody else amplify your voice often. So it's about plugging in. It's about really basic boring stuff. So in the junior doctor's contract, there's things like, you know, so if you don't get the rest and breaks that you're entitled to, you're meant to do what we call an exception report. Um, so at the end of every shift that you've not got that, you're meant to fill in a little thing on a computer that says, I didn't get my rest and breaks today. And as new junior doctors, you will feel, and I promise you, because this is universal, you will get to six o'clock and you're meant to be going home, but you've not done all your work. You're going to stay and you're going to tell yourself that the reason you're not going home is because you're not good enough yet and you just aren't there. You haven't, And that's not your fault. That's not your problem. You are there to learn as you do the job. And if you're not going home at six o'clock, whatever the reason, you need to tell us that. Because otherwise, all that happens is that this becomes institutionalised and enshrined. So using those protective mechanisms um, uh, helps, but it needs everybody to do it. Um, and it needs people to be honest with themselves. We need to think about it as a team and not an individual responsibility and all sorts of things mm. like that. So what I'm hearing, Mike, is that it's, it's important to understand your contract so that you know when it's being breached, uh, to lean into the unions and to lean into exception reporting which is something i already love because of exactly what you said the fact that it you know it makes it might make your workplace better you, you will say you. that now and i promise you in your first year as a doctor your first few months as a doctor i will almost be willing to bet you money that you will find it difficult to fill in the exception reports because you'll be sitting there going if i was just that little bit better i would have got home at six o'clock and that's not the point you're not meant to be perfect on day one you are meant to be on a learning curve and we are meant to be supporting mm. you on that learning curve not beating you into the ground from the very mm. first day but you know it's a great job i promise i really do promise um, the other thing lara i'll be checking up on you next year to make sure you're filling them out yeah go on you can check me, can check me. <laughs> just to be gloriously political for a second so um one of the things that is already being floated by our current government now that we have uh, left the protection of the European Union is things like the, the European Working Time Directive, which made a huge change when I was a junior doctor uh, in terms of what we were expecting junior doctors to be flogged to do, basically. Um, so already the current government are floating the possibility that maybe we might come out of agreements like this. So when you are at the ballot box, please think carefully about who you're voting for and what might follow in the wake of it, is all I will say. I'm just, it, it's nice to hear you say that we're allowed to actually think about maybe going home at six or... I mean, this is it's really daunting because obviously when you're joining a new hospital, you're joining new doctors, you're joining new consultants, you want to make a good impression... You don't want to leave at 6am, but it's good. It's nice to know that I can think about it or consider it. And like, like Lara said, it's not just me. It's the whole cyclical pattern of if I don't do it this year, next year's round of junior doctors are going to have to go through the same thing. And it is difficult. And part of that is as well is that it's about always remembering who you've been. So, you know, when you are the, the SHO then be the SHO or the F2 or the ST or whatever it is these days, but be the person who makes sure that the new F1 
is supported and gets away on yeah. time rather than just the person. So you have to kind of you know pay that forward and, and pay it back. It's not perfect. It really isn't. And it varies hugely across specialties and hospitals and trusts. Um, I'm a paediatrician. I think generally paediatricians and paediatrics is, is better at this overall. I'll, I'll probably get lots of people then telling me <laughs> all the examples of where it's not. But, but yeah, I think it does vary. But yeah, you kind of have to think about it in that way. And it's about being part of a team. It's not possible, um, you know, so the volume of work that comes through, it's not possible for you to finish every job. You're going to hand some things on. They're going to hand some things back to you when they finish the night shift. And it's about supporting your colleagues. So, you know, it's not, you know, pulling the face when the night SHO hands over 10 jobs to do and you go, oh, I can't believe you didn't get that done. It's about appreciating that, you know, it's the, it's about the team getting everything done. And it's okay for you to hand something on to the evening person. It's okay for the evening person to hand something on to the night person. It's okay for the night person to hand something back to the day team, um, rather than pushing people to, to do everything themselves, because otherwise you just get yourself into bad habits very quickly. You will get yourself into bad habits, because we all do, um, but it's about being aware of that and getting yourself back out of them sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. It's, but it's really important for all of our listeners to be aware of it, even if they are tempted to slip into the traps that we've mentioned. Okay, Anisha, what would you say are your sort of takeaway points from today's recording? What have you learnt that you're going to apply? I think one of the first things you said was that up until 25, you're still classed as an adolescent. I think that, I really, that took that to heart. I thought I'd reached a point where actually, okay, I don't, if I skip a few hours of sleep, I'll manage. But actually, being a student, it's really important that I you get that sleep because clearly I'm still developing um so I'm definitely just going to maybe not convince myself to skip those few hours of sleep because it's really easy to do that I think I'm going to actually take take on those hours of sleep you can really easily just convince yourself actually to be a better student or to be a better doctor no let me get up early and read that chapter in the handbook or do a few extra questions when actually it's okay to just lie in for an hour and sleep that might work out better long term or it will work out better long term definitely what about you Lara well I'm still it's still something that super daunts me about being a doctor but uh but I feel like I've now got a few more tools in my toolkit for getting ready so in summer I'm gonna have a go and just check in and see how much sleep I need use that (laughs) opportunity uh and I'm going to imagine Mike every time I want chocolate cake during a night shift. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and <laughs> and uh you guys can uh, can check in on me in uh like what like 8 9 months time and check in on me about the chocolate cake thing and check in on me about the exception reporting thing. I'd love to That <laughs> sounds love, like, I'm a like I'm so curious. Yeah. It's going to be hard. They you always see on the wards they everywhere every ward has a box of chocolates. Cookies with biscuits, it's going to be hard. Yeah, and so, and just to be very clear on that, sometimes at three o'clock in the morning, a Mars bar is exactly what you need. Um, so you know, there are are things about night shift, yeah, there are some things about night shift that are difficult. And the the worst thing you can do is punish yourself. Oh my god, I didn't follow Mike's rules. My rules are not, you know, that sometimes you have to break the rules because that's the right you know the other priorities take place if you've just had mm. a really horrible few hours then it's actually sitting in a corner and stuffing your face with the mars bar is is absolutely the right thing to do trust me agreed amen thank you i'm really glad to hear that i'm really glad the co- that coffee nap napping is a real thing 
Yeah, that was a good takeaway. <laughs> okay, so finally, Mike, what would you say is a takeaway message or your top tip for our medical student and junior doctor listeners? I think it probably is, um, I was going to say, so it's, it's about maybe using the time before you start as junior doctors to really start thinking about your sleep and trying to get as good core sleep routines and habits as you can because once you hit the wards uh, as F1s, the, all the other pressures are going to make that more difficult. So the more you've thought about that before you start, the better. And it's just as tough as medical students to do that. But I'm afraid there's so many more different priorities and pressures of being an F1 that if you can take the time before you start as an F1 to have thought about those things, it will probably stand you in good stead. that's all from us on sharp scratch today if you'd like to hear more from us subscribe to sharp scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll be notified of our next episode while you wait for the next one do check us out on social media we're bmj student on twitter facebook and instagram let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag sharp scratch i'd love to hear your ideas about what you think we should cover later on in the season it's also really helpful to us if you leave us a rating or a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps other med students find the show until then bye from us Bye. Bye.